The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 1, 18-25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, James. Appreciate it, buddy. Well, I don't know what your um, classic Christmas TV or movie go-tos are. I wonder what they are. Be interested to see. I still love Claymation Rudolph. I don't know if anybody does that one. I, have it, I have, literally have it recorded on our um, DirecTV box, and I watch it. I'll even watch it by myself sometimes. I love Yukon Cornelius. He's the best. Um, but... I will say, I would be curious, um, this is actually the 30th anniversary, I don't know if you've seen, you know, that every now and then they put these things out, like, this is the anniversary of this movie or whatever, of the movie Scrooge, Bill Murray's uh, version of A Christmas Carol, and I was kind of looking into that, because I love that, I think it's hilarious, it's actually become, a, as Bill Murray, all Bill Murray's films have, become a cult classic, uh, in, in fact, when it first came out, it was terrible, horrible reviews, nobody liked it, but now, like, through the years, you know, of course, it's, you know, Bill Murray's... Uh, cult classic movies like that, Groundhog Day and others. But, but if you look at Christmas films, um, particularly ones uh, just even stretching back, like It's a Wonderful Life, th- like there's so many of those and they deal with like going back to the past. And if you, if you think about it, um, even the movie Scrooge and several others, if you type that in, A, a Christmas Carol coming from Charles Dickens' classic um, it actually has its roots in a million different things. If you look at all these Christmas films, primarily, they, they draw back to the past, and they look at the present, and they look at the future. And, and, and it's interesting how many have built over the years uh, that when Dickens wrote this classic in, in kind of the uh, uh, mid-Victorian era of England uh, in, the, in the mid-19th century, it was really a, a huge, colossal change. Because uh, Dickens had written this thing, and if you recall what it's about, if you haven't, you've probably seen some version of it that sounds like this. There's some sort of miser or stingy man who is um, just not liking Christmas. He's probably in, in, in the Christmas Carol, he's a businessman, very um, uh, uptight, not, uh, you know, not in for all the hubbub and the holidays, it finds himself alone, and he's visited by three ghosts. Uh, the ghost of Christmas past, the present, and the future, and he's shown his life over this span. And uh, if you look, though, what's interesting about it, I was kind of doing some research on Dickens' classic. If you research him particularly, Dickens actually had such a difficult childhood growing up. 
Now, if you read and even even the, the lines from not just the movies, but from the like original script uh, of what a Christmas Carol was, you can read about his difficult childhood and what a Christmas Carol was actually drawing out. He said, um, in some sense, it was him trying to revisit and reclaim his childhood, somehow coming back to that. But but essentially, the the idea of how in our past, present, future can we reclaim this, this joy again? Is Christmas bringing us back to that? He even says this in, in that um, a great classic tale. He says, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. So we just read this passage this morning, and I don't know how you are during Advent season. We've been looking at encounters with Jesus. We're looking at kind of the Advent portion of that. But we're looking at a story, particularly a, a historical narrative of Joseph. And when we read these, often they can be read and just moved on. But there's something huge about this story that I think we miss often. And particularly that when we look at Joseph, there's not much we know about him. And yet he's this colossal significant figure. If you read the Bible, there's actually very few accounts where he's mentioned. And even when he is, the Gospel of Mark doesn't even mention him. And yet, we get in this moment a glimpse of both, of all three of his past, present, and future, and it all has to do with this child. And the question really is, is is Christmas a moment for us to just kind of warm our hearts again, or is there something really breaking in and changing our life? Because the story of Joseph isn't this warm, oh man, I'm going to have a child. It's actually a serious crisis in the life of Joseph. And his encounter with Jesus is not an easy one. It's actually a very, very difficult one. And you're going to see why. So let's look at this passage through the past, present, and future of Joseph's life. And then thus how his encounter with Jesus and those also really works into our past, present, and future. First even question is, it begins in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. It's giving us a statement. Matthew is from the get-go saying this is how. This is what it was. It's it's telling us that this is an account. This is a historical provided account for you. If you're saying, wait, how did did Jesus' birth come? How did the Messiah come? That's essentially asking, answering this question. And it's coming even from another passage right before, if you notice, we started in verse 18. Well, verses one through 17 is one of those passages that when you read in the Old Testament, you always skip over. It's so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was in the father of so-and-so, and who's the father of so-and-so, and you don't even know how to pronounce the names, and you're like, hey, what's the next chapter, right? But why is it starting that way? Matthew is beginning to give us, he's setting the tone, the picture of what's to come. See, between what was Malachi, which was the last book in the Old Testament, maybe not in time-wise written, but in the last, between that year and then Matthew was 400 years. 400 years of silence, quiet. Doesn't mean that God wasn't there, wasn't working, but there was I mean, you can imagine, there's all this written in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is building, building, building. Imagine seeing a preview over and over, even more of it, and then the film never comes out. You're like, what was all this for? 
400 years of silence, quiet, nothing, they're waiting, and then all of a sudden, boom, and you read this genealogy of an account of history, and it connects to this one little line, how the birth of Jesus and Messiah came about, and even this line in here, verse 20, where it says, Joseph, son of David, this key figure that connects, you kind of get a glimpse of who is this man, Joseph? He's in the line of this genealogy. And why it's important is, and I think it's interesting, especially now, this is preaching and talking about this text today is actually, I think, different than even five, 10 years ago. Because today, think about how easy, easily accessible and interested we are in like things like ancestry.com, right? DNA testing, like all these things. But this is before that, Right? We're all wondering, what are, what's our lineage? Where are we from? They're asking the same questions, and they don't have any of that access. They don't have the internet. They don't have that. So what did they do? They wrote a genealogy. They connected it person to person to person to person to person to person, and they worked it out. And that genealogy is this historical account of where does this Joseph guy come from? He's in the line all the way back from the beginning, from even Abraham to the greatest king ever known, David. And yet, here's the funny thing. He's not, Joseph isn't even mentioned in Mark. He's not even talked about. Even when he's mentioned in the, in the Gospel of John. And so there are four Gospels, if you're unfamiliar. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew talks about him probably the most. Luke talks about him a little. Mark skips over him completely. And John, when he talks about him, references to him indirectly. And yet, he's supposed to be the father. Yet, this is, and this is what blows my mind. Yet through the ages, God has looked and pinned and had the one who is going to be the father and father of his own son. Who was going to be the one who was going to raise up, grow up the Messiah, God's son? Who is he going to put in that position? Joseph isn't noble. He, isn't, he doesn't have any position. You, you would think maybe because Jesus is who he is, is the Messiah. Maybe in this line of people, you just see all this royalty. David is a royal figure, but even David himself has such a sordid past. If you look at where the Messiah comes from, even the genealogy and who's mentioned in it, they are not the people that you would want in you're saying an announcement of a king of the Messiah, the one who's gonna save everybody? And yet this no name is the one who's supposed to raise him? You can see this, this constant tugging. There's this buzz in the air of, 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 wait, the Messiah's here. Here's how he came. 400 years of silence and now we're ready and poised. And wait, this is the guy? It's through this person who's a carpenter? who doesn't have any standing, he doesn't have any reputation, he doesn't have any life there. And it's huge because this is, think about this, this is the one that we worship. I, I think we sentimentalize Christmas time and Jesus and his, who he is so much that we forget that these are peasants. Like when Joseph took his family to the temple and they made a sacrifice. The only thing they could sacrifice, usually you brought a heifer or a goat even. All they could bring were birds. 
And in that time, that was, that was literally like bringing pennies when you're supposed to bring five, 10, 15, $20. It was nothing. You had nothing to offer. And yet this is the course through which God brings and ushers in the advent, the arrival, the announcement, the Messiah's here, here he is. And here's the classic difference. This is why his past matters and ours does too. Because the events of Christianity drive the teaching rather than the other. See, in, it's distinct. Christianity is distinct from any other religion, philosophy, or understanding in this. The events that occur drive the teaching rather than the teaching about it drive the events. What does God do? Everything is about God acting in history, time, space on his people in order for us to go, I can do nothing but speak about it. Different than anything else where you teach it and hope there's some good that comes out of it. This is an event that happens through history and space and time where God acts through even the means of a peasant, carpenter, barely making ends meet. His past is nothing. And yet God uses it to bring the Messiah, the actual one who would save all of us. It's incredible. And it works not even just from his past, but into the present in this. And you read about who Joseph is. His mother, Mary, pledged to, married, to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was, a faithful, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after this, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Think about Joseph for a moment. That's Joseph's past, and yet he's connected to David, which is a powerful name, and yet his present goes along with actually his past life as well. He hits a crisis. This, this part of the story we read often is so sentimentalized, I don't think we pull it out, and it gets really difficult because they're engaged. And engagement is a little different here. They would be engaged for a year, considered husband and wife, and then after a year of what was called betrothal, then the, the marriage would become final. But once you, you were involved in that year-long engagement, that was legal. It was a legal engagement. So in order to, to that's why divorce is brought in here, and that's why even the terms husband and wife. But imagine this. Joseph has just found out that his wife, the one he is going to be married to, is pregnant, and it is not his. Some of you in this room have maybe struggled in that area. Some of you have, have relatives or have, may have even think about something like that for a moment happening as much as we sentimentalize this kind of thing. Think about the reality of that. Joseph is having to be face-to-face -face with a crisis with the woman he loves and is to be married to. And don't you know, the angel has come to her and said, you are with child, and she's tried to explain this to Joseph. Uh, wouldn't that come across as crazy? Mary, that's sweet, but you're pregnant with another man's child. I, you're either a liar or a lunatic. Can you imagine Joseph's position for a moment? 
Think about the difficulty of this. Think about the betrayal, the sadness. There is a lot in this section that is easily missed over when we read this during Christmas because it is intense. It doesn't give you the warm fuzzies that you think about. It gives you the reality. That there is a, is a crisis here in Joseph's life and, and that he has to face. And what I find pretty amazing is even that he has to make a choice, but he doesn't know which way to go. Even the Greek here, when it says uh, in verse 20, but after he considered this, right before the angel comes, that the language after he considered this in the Greek means he was taking steps forwards, but still had no clue what to do. You know that idea. I mean, some of you may even be in that place in your life today where you have such a huge crisis, such an event in your life, whether it be physical, social, emotional, whatever it is, and sometimes it seizes you so much so that you don't even know, you, you know you have to take a step and you probably do take a step forward, but you still don't know where you're going. That is the emotion that he has. There's actually even a, a, a Sean Mendez song that talks about this that I think is interesting, called In My Blood. When Sean Mendez says this, listen to his words. Help me, it's like the walls are caving in. Sometimes I feel like giving up, but I just can't, it, is, it isn't in my blood. Laying on the bathroom floor, feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something I could take to ease my mind slowly. Just have a drink and you'll feel better. Just take her home. You'll feel better. Keep telling me that it gets better. Does it ever? Help me. It's like the walls are caving in. I mean, this is Joseph. He's taking steps forward. He doesn't know where he's going. And, and what's profound in this, I would say, is, is the fact that he does take steps forward. It says he's faithful to the law. He's just. He wants to hold Mary with care, but he also wants to hold the fact that he needs to take some steps forward that are correct. He wants to be faithful to the law, faithful to what is true and right, that he, he, he shouldn't probably be in this marriage if this is the case. And yet, What's powerful in this scene is that he actually cares for both. He has all the rights in the world to divorce her and shame her publicly. Um, imagine this. How bad it would be, and, and this may be a situation in this room, and this has happened in religious circles, where someone who has gotten pregnant out of wedlock has been shamed publicly by a religious circle. Happens a lot, I think. In this case, he legally had every right to do so. And to put all the shame on her. It, would, it wouldn't be breaking the law, it wouldn't be wrong in those terms, but yet, you know what he does that's amazing with the law? He doesn't treat her in that sense. He still faithfully says, you know what, I love her, enough not to treat her as the law deserves. Not to publicly expose her in that way. But here's what blows my mind, even more than this. God could have let him go that route, but he doesn't. He actually calls him to something even more difficult. He calls him to marry her. He calls him to take on a life that he actually was not going to take on. An angel of the Lord, verse 20, appeared to him in a dream 
and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will, be, he will save his people from their sins. Listen to this. Twice in here it is spoken of as the virgin birth. And it is really important for us to, to talk about that just a, a brief sentence or so. The Bible does say that this was a virgin birth. It makes a point twice in here that Joseph had not touched her and yet she was with child. Now, the virgin birth is not the exact same thing as what we call the incarnation, meaning took on flesh. The virgin birth is the fact that the Holy Spirit was able to conceive Jesus within Mary. And I think we as Christians, and I have to say even in this passage, there's no reason for us to not believe that. Because over the centuries, people have said, Well, I don't know about the virgin birth. Maybe I could believe in the incarnation that Jesus, that the Messiah took on flesh. But the virgin birth, uh, scientifically, I don't know. Look, here's the point. The point is twofold. One is that the Holy Spirit is involved himself and is coming to David to say, there's something bigger going on. But two is to say, this child is incredibly important. And this is why we see Joseph's reaction the way it is. Because he is caught not only in a crisis, but now with the choice, do I obey God in the most difficult decision of my life? Do I listen to him? Do I follow him? Because it's harder. Think, let's talk about this for a second. Think about this application for a moment. In our culture and society, in Nashville, I was just talking to somebody about this this week. It is so easy for us in a place, especially if you're here this morning, maybe you're you're from a church background, maybe you're not, to be in Nashville and be somebody who's been in a church background, you can kind of go, yeah, I fit here. Like Paul Lim even mentioned this last week, who was preaching here. Uh, he, he mentioned, he said, when they first moved to Nashville, people asked, what church do you go to? The, the, the real estate agents, when they're looking for places to live. And he mentioned, yeah, what do you do if you lie? I actually know of people who, who have felt uncomfortable saying, do I go to a church or not? Because they may not be followers of Christ. But we live in a city that could be really easy for us to, to be nice and treat people with kindness and also follow the law. And follow, yes, I do go to church, but you know what, I'm gonna be really nice. We could take Joseph's care for Mary and what he's doing is really, wow, that's pretty amazing. God actually moves him beyond that. You know what real Christianity is? Real Christianity isn't just going to church and being nice to people at Christmas who have hurt you and overlooking difficulty. It's actually entering in where God says, I'm calling you to obey and it's gonna, you're gonna be taking on the greatest loss of your life. You're gonna lose it for me. Think about this socially, economically, emotionally. He's taking on all of those difficulties by saying, I'm going to be in this position. I'm going to take on the fact that everybody's gonna know. And it comes out, you read it in the Gospels, that I'm the father, but not, I'm the adopted father of Jesus. 
emotionally, the difficulty that comes through that. Of him still wrestling with the fact, okay, the Holy Spirit. I mean, look, the, the, Joseph, people always say in these passages, oh, well, they're ancient times. Scientifically, they're willing to accept things. Are you kidding me? After he considered this, he knows exactly what's going on. He didn't believe her. And God comes to him, says these things, and says he will save his people from their sins. Whoa. And yet he obeys. He faithfully walks forward, and yet he still doesn't know. He doesn't understand it fully. And yet he embraces the loss even more. Look, there are two losses in front of him. One is the fact he can divorce Mary and be very and be like, okay, I'm gonna suffer that loss of not being in this relationship, but I'm gonna move on and she'll move on. But then there's the loss of taking on this whole life and loving her through this and protecting Jesus from a genocide that would come right after when they would have to flee to Egypt and taking him to the temple to be purified and take the Passover. Where do you think Jesus learned about all the things of Judaism? It was from Joseph. How did he learn about the pain of the world? It was from Joseph. Who sought him when he was lost? It was Joseph. And yet, here's the amazing thing. You know what? Joseph died before Jesus' ministry ever occurred. It's an account. He, he actually wasn't even around. And yet, Joseph embraces this loss. I read this blog <clears throat> recently called Embrace the Life You Have. And I want you to hear this, this story from this woman. Because this is, I think, what Joseph is really putting forward to us. She said, we're moving Cleaning out boxes from the attic has left me more unsettled and emotional than I ever anticipated. As I open each crate, I vividly remember the way life used to be, the hobbies I used to love, the things I used to do, thumbing through my memories, and I'm reminded again of the life I'm living now. Isn't what I signed up for. Nothing has turned out as I, as I planned. While I'm deeply convinced that I'm living out God's best for me, there are days I mourn the loss of what used to be. Particularly recently, I've been going through old tubs, each one filled with the memories of life that no longer exists, pictures of long ago, family vacations and Christmases past, recitals, school plays, shoeboxes filled with letters from people I no longer know, childhood photographs that make me laugh and at the same time cringe in horror, all reminders how my life has changed because my diagnosis of post-polio syndrome has changed all that. With my arms deteriorating, I couldn't afford to waste energy on crafts. She's an artist. I boxed everything up with help, labeled it, shoved it in the attic, and I didn't look at it again till now. And this grieving isn't particular to me. A few weeks ago, I spoke with three friends, all of whom are facing significant disappointment. One used to be an opera singer, but her vocal cords have changed and she can no longer sing as she once did. Another friend is looking forward to her younger child going to school. She could pursue the ministry that she felt called to, but an unexpected pregnancy dramatically changed her plans. Third friend has a child with special needs and constantly wonders about her child's future as well as her own. Like all my friends, all, my, all of us face disappointment 
Our lives look vastly different than we imagined they would. So what do we do? Her counsel from John Piper has been immeasurably helpful. She said, occasionally weep deeply over life. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. And what she means by that is this. That what it means for us, and I, I love that she's recurring past, present, and even future, looking at what does it mean to weep deeply over your past? It means to embrace it. It means the fact that if you're really going to say, I follow Jesus, we're taking up something that's more than just sweet and sentimental. We're taking up a story that Joseph tells us is actually deeply painful and transformative in ways that he didn't expect, nor did he maybe want. And yet he did. And what it meant to wash face and why that is used, it means to look at your circumstances. It means to look at biblical redirection. It means to move your eyes in a way that maybe you wouldn't want to obey. This is why Jesus even puts himself in positions where he might not obey, but he does. He redirects his eyes. We are to redirect our eyes. And that's what Joseph does. It's not that he has it all figured out. How does he trust, even in this own dream, that everything is gonna work out? He doesn't even see it happen. And yet embrace the love that God has for us. Here's the difference between Charles Dickens and us in our past, present, and future. It's the fact that it's not us embracing this sweet, sentimental child. It's actually about the child that embraces us. It's about the child that does what we can't do. Tim Keller said this, listen to this. This is his quote about Christmas. No one is really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about that claim? That if it is true, it means you've lost control of your life and you can't be neutral about Christmas. There's no way that Joseph could be neutral about Christmas. You know why we know this is his future? Because that's what this table is. This is Joseph's future right here. Think about this. Joseph heard, he will save you from your sins. You shall call him Jesus. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, Joseph never saw that. He never heard him in his ministry. He never saw him on the cross, even like Mary did. And yet this is his future. This is his past, present, and future wrapped up at this table. Because God had a grip on him more than he had a grip on us. Think about this. Joseph is the one who would hold his hand often, just with Mary, and protect him. God put his own son in the hands of a human father to protect him from evil and pain. And yet, who would do the ultimate protection? Jesus. That's the advent. If you want to know what this is about, it's about Joseph being obedient, not knowing what everything was going to happen, but he knew who was coming. He knew it. 
that Yahweh saves, that his name is Jesus because this son that I will be protecting, how ironic, is gonna be the one that saves me, not just physically, but in all of life. Who's gonna heal all the ways that it has been broken? And I'm willing to take up any loss that it takes to follow the one who actually heals life. And you know what the biggest heresy? Do you know what the big number one thing that was the problem people had with Christianity in the past? We in our culture often go, there's no way. Could Jesus really be God? Do you know what they couldn't believe? They couldn't believe he was man. Did you know the number one problem people had with Christianity was there's no way he could be a man? Because he, Emmanuel, he identified with his people. Joseph's son would be his savior. This is yours. Different than Ebenezer Scrooge, as he finished, he even said, I'll honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all year. I'll live in the past, present, and future. The spirits of all three will strive within me. Can't do that. I love the sentiment, Ebenezer. But none of us can hold Christmas tightly. The point of Christmas is that it holds you and me. So when you taste his body and blood, you know that it's his that's given. This is your past, present, and future. Let's stand together.